Hello and welcome to Superhumane Vitae. This is a podcast where we talk about comic books, graphic novels, and other forms of media that have been inspired by comic books and graphic novels. And we look at them through the lens of our Catholic faith. I'm John Kamiski. And I'm Brendan Lyons. Welcome to part two of our discussion of Kingdom Come. So where we last left off from our story is uh, we're outside Wayne Manor. Before this, Superman has come out of isolation as a recluse back into the world after a extended hiatus from superheroing, and he's bringing his pals back with him. And, and, uh, and he's telling the UN where they can stick it. That's, that's right, Brendan. Just so. And uh, the, the UN, they don't, they don't like his suggestion. <laughs> they also don't protest, as you may notice. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, that's that's. <laughs> A whole part of our discussion as far as what they what their feelings are, what they can do and what they can't do and sort of what those implications are. At this point, we've got Norman McKay is our human guide. He is a pastor and the Spectre, who is a golden age DC superhero, a spirit of vengeance from God, is sort of Norman McKay's spirit guide. There's, I don't know, almost a bit of a Christmas carol kind of thing going on. Walking through visions of a world coming undone through the next generation of superheroes. And at this point, we have not encountered Bruce Wayne slash Batman. But but in a moment, we will. We'll see how Bruce is doing in this future. This could be future. So when we do go into the Batcave, Brendan, uh, how would you you describe Bruce? (laughs) Old. Well, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I'd... uh describe him any differently than we expect him to be uh, at least not in his you know his private persona he is gruff he is not interested in superman telling him what is right and what is wrong as he has his own uh, his own thoughts on that and um like any human being i think would be if they were friends with superman he's kind of over it <laughs> from what i can tell <laughs> you know it's uh i, I think um and it, it could just be me but i, I think are all at times Batman in a similar way that we are all at times Tony Stark with Captain America he's like you know I I get it but come on man like take it back scale it back you know we don't need to hear about your star-spangled underwear and oh my goodness yeah so <laughs> and that's kind of the attitude that I uh, I feel like Batman has or at least it would seem he has that idea We'll see exactly where he's going. Everyone knows the Cape Crusader is five, six, 12, at least two steps ahead of everyone uh, most of the time. So, pretty much. He's also got a neat metal looking suit that I imagine makes him stronger. So, yeah, well, there's there's two different metal suits, I guess. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. This one is a uh, more of a skeletal sort of thing that's going down his arms and whatnot. Yeah, it looks like he's taken more lumps since since we've seen him in sort of his younger escapades. And this looks like it probably helps get him through the day. Yeah, I don't even know. Maybe he can't walk without it. I, I, I couldn't say. Man has been broken a number of times. Yeah, he's. it's funny. Uh, different writers kind of approach him in different ways. And it could be just the writer, but it could also be just how the writer envisions an older Bruce Wayne. But he's, I agree with you that a it does seem true to form in terms of his personality and how he receives Superman's visit. But he also, he's, he's kind of a cheeky dude. He's, he's got some lip. He's got some sarcasm. This is a, a Batman who's not unwilling to crack some snide jokes at Clark slash Cal's expense. Well, you know, he always was the, um, 
maybe witty is not the word, but it has a sharper wit than uh, Superman, mainly because Superman, uh, in my experience at least, is not interested in, I wouldn't say levity, but not interested in sarcasm or anything other than being more or less completely straightforward. So Sure, and I think that really. <laughs> that kind of hits the nail on it for me as far as, for Superman, he's a, he's a straightforward guy. His, truth is kind of his defining, I don't know, goal, virtue. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tied with justice in the American way. Well, all that. And what was that? Did I just hear an eagle screech and watch it fly by at this moment? No, I, that might have been my cat, actually. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> anyway, it does sound like a bird sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So for Superman, I I agree. I think for him, he's not interested in, in sarcasm. He's kind of just very open and transparent and an and avatar of truth and, and wholesomeness. And for Bruce, he's pretty willing to. I think the sarcasm kind of is his way of I don't know, disguising or, or like thinly veiling his his motives, his feelings, his thoughts. And I think that's kind of true to him where for him, you know, he's striving for justice, but sometimes that's through secrecy or through more shadowy or convoluted ways that he doesn't divulge as, as openly as Clark might. So even though these two are friends, super friends, you might even say, it's clear that over the years that there's been some strain to the relationship. Doesn't look like it's been necessarily broken. Bruce doesn't outrightly sort of boot him out of the cave, but he's pretty, even with the, the sarcasm and, uh, and the wisecracks, he more or less tells Clark, he's like, look, I'm good. I've got my city under control. And although he's certainly looking for global justice, Batman's always been pretty focused on Gotham. That's his, his top priority is his city. And he's, as far as he's concerned, he's got that under control through a remote squadron of bat bots these huge robotic sentinels that patrol the city and scare the ever living daylights out of people who rob liquor stores or whatever. I don't know why that's the first thing that comes to mind. Well, the point, you know, what it comes down to is that Jeff Bezos has his city. I'm sorry. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Bruce Wayne has his city taken care of. The specter says as much, and we have no reason not to, uh, not to feel that that's the case, aside from, you know, how many decades of having Batman and we still have crazy clowns and whatnot. But hey, you know, I'm not here to talk about the effectiveness mm-hmm. of different law enforcement techniques. We're here to talk about Batman and ethics. Indeed. <laughs> One thing that I will also mention before you get into that, and I don't know if it's salient, but it looks like there's a character called Genocide. And they've blown up Arkham Asylum and everyone in it, according to Superman. So they don't ever show it in the comic, but that also seems to have affected Bruce's life in terms of most of the key sort of alpha criminals have been eliminated. And so it's kind of more of the either whatever organized crime remains or just kind of what you would expect mm-hmm. in, in the real world. That's the case. But it's, it's a little eerie. Bruce does say in following up to Superman's comic that uh, he's like, oh yeah, you know, not to mention Bell Rev Prison and Blackgate, not an action I'd condone, but tell me the thought of it doesn't give your invulnerable skin a little tingle. <laughs> so. Yeah, so. you know, it's it's interesting. I, I've i seen this and I, you know, I've not read quite as many comic books as you have, but I have noticed that old man Batman, his whole, he's not quite as uh, enamored with his, don't kill anybody stance like he still has it i think 
but he's kind of he as well as he's, he, he's not mad at it you know a criminal gets it gets killed and he's like yeah all right, well i didn't kill him like <laughs> i feel like in the um some of the darker batmans where he's old like <laughs> he's a very bitter man which i guess i could understand but you lose some of the um you know the batman the animated series and some of the movies and some of the other comics and where he's like no he's it's He's not Superman, but he has a code. And he's like, look, I, you know, I'll break every bone in your body, but I got to make sure you live. Like, because mm-hmm. I don't kill people. That's, that's, not, that's not justice in my mind. Like, he, he's a little bit more, he, 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 tend, he seems to become a little bit more of like a, what's the word? Like, a more of a legalistic mm-hmm. guy in his, like, I can't kill anybody. I don't give a crap if everybody else dies. Like, it's like that, that's an interesting observation. It's harsh, and I, I and I don't know that they, you know, I don't know how far that carries across. But I got that feeling from like the Dark Knight Returns, the comic book. This, I think there's something else I read where he was old, but like mm. he's kind of like, uh, and I don't know. I, I I wonder if it's an intentional continuation of his extrajudicial, like I can sneak around and break it beat people up and someone's got to take care of them but i'll do the thing where i swoop in and punch people in the face which would be interesting if it was that sort of like okay you know we're we're following it to its logical end where he's like okay i'm still not going to kill anybody because i have my rules but if everybody gets dead that's easier for me man which is a sad way to turn but i I, it could be what people are going for or they just people like that batman's dark and that's a dark way to be yeah, it, it seems like in cases like this, and I agree that there's often depictions of an older Bruce Wayne or an older Batman that sort of carry this character silhouette mm. in, in terms of how they behave. And yeah, it's kind of an interesting thought that maybe he becomes more legalistic. Like the code, like as a younger man, like he really believes in it. And then maybe the idea is that as he gets older, like it's sort of the framework is sort of all he has left, even if his heart's not quite in it, that like he's hanging on by his fingernails in terms of his his humanity and what still makes him a hero or his mission noble. But but yeah, it, it gets it gets to a point where I think a lot of it has to do. And you see this a little bit, I think, in Batman versus Superman, the movie where just the time sort of gradually erodes, like any compromises that he's made or any any of the ways where he's trying to enact justice and just kind of towing the line, like it's only sort of getting that much closer as success has kind of eluded him in terms of really rooting out the evil that he sees in his city. Yeah. Um, you know, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and it's, it's sad. It's at a certain point, I guess a lot of writers kind of see like, well, Bruce Wayne would just become jaded. Like at a certain point he's tried it his way and, how how long is it before he decides like this hasn't worked and how many people have have died along the way how many friends how many family how many times has he sacrificed everything in his life and it just comes back around to the status quo that is gotham city yeah that's actually that's kind of the direction my mind was going you know if you if you decide that the only way to actually solve things and make things better is to work outside the current framework and you do that and it continuously doesn't it continuously does not change the the culture not the culture but like it doesn't change the situation you know in the end all batman really is doing and this this might less be a uh, 
a consequence of his behavior and more a consequence of the fact that we just keep making comic books. I mean, you know, people like to read them, but he is not doing anything all that much different in the end than what the cops were doing. Mm. Except he's not doing it in a corrupt manner, but in the end, well, I mean, maybe he is, but in the end, the worst criminals still get out, still go back to crime, still fight him. So the end result isn't that much different than, than, you know, Salvador Moroni getting picked up and then being like, okay, well, I'm back on the street again until he gets long Halloweened in the street. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, I like that you made that into a verb. I, you know, I only made it into a verb because I forgot the name of the actual guy from, from Long Halloween. But I forgot the name of Wait, the guy who kills him. Uh, it's not Carmen. Oh, who kills him? Uh, who kills? Yeah, it's the actual holiday killer. I, I can't remember his name. Oh, oh, oh okay, uh, yeah. Which is embarrassing, and people are going to be really mad. <laughs> It'll come to me later. Yeah, I have it on my um, shelf, and I still don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I mean, it's in my car actually. But yeah, so I, you know, the people are still getting back out. So he can hold to his code, but he can also see his code not have the lasting success he wants it to. So if somebody gets killed and is no longer committing crimes, maybe it's not so bad. Yeah. For him, it's not, not, it's no, not right, my right. personal statement. <laughs> right. You're not endorsing. No, no, uh, no. No, yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, it kind of then becomes sort of this tenuous situation of, a code that maybe not explicitly, but implicitly he's questioning, like, is the code that he's placed upon himself, the mission that he's taken on, is it meant to, are the results what validate the code or is there an objective good to sort of the values he places upon himself? And yeah, well, maybe- I mean, you have that question and then you have to ask yourself, is the objective good of the way he conducts himself? It doesn't matter. If his core, pl- if his core reason for doing it is to clean up Gotham, mm-hmm. then doesn't really matter that his core, he sticks to his core principles for anybody other than himself. Yeah, I think, I think as I'm... a Catholic, I would say it does matter because he himself <laughs> has to comport himself in a manner that is appropriate. Therefore, it's more important that he protects his soul and demonstrates Mm. a certain amount of uh, leading by example for how to go about this the moral way which i'm not sure he does because he breaks people's faces who may or may not be really all that bad but anyway then it is for him to get justice in the world Mm. mainly because our catholic faith sort of forces us to admit that the world can't provide us the justice that the human being deserves so true so, you know, right. when it comes down to it, if he's going outside of what is okay in order to get justice, then he's not really doing himself any favors. And he's not doing the people he works with any favors with that example, which actually kind of fits with what <laughs> I was going to talk about. No, absolutely. I think this is a great time for you to explore some of the, what would you call it, philosophy at work here? Oh, yes. Yes. So before we get into what Batman's actually up to, and you know, I'm hoping people have read this, because if you haven't read this, I guess it's, I don't know, maybe you just like listening to us, in which case you can just hear me speak and hear my cat cry in the background. So I want to talk about cooperation with evil. So I got into it a little bit, and kind of what I was talking about before was a bit more of a, uh, a double effect thing, where we're trying to decide whether his act itself is is evil, but this is... This is not if you are the actor. 
This is if you are the cooperator and there's a principal agent. So principal agent is the person who is doing something. Otto, really, is not going to help if you do that. Is that coming through? <laughs> it's coming through. Great. I, okay. I'm imagining that uh, it's just sort of a, a nod to Catwoman <laughs> and a discussion about Batman. But <laughs> what's wrong with that? You're absolutely right. That's 100% my intention. Okay. Of course. And intention, though, is unfortunately only part of an act. There's also object and circumstances but so in this case what i'm talking about is cooperation so when you are working with a cooperation you have the principal agent and you have the cooperator it really only matters if you're the cooperator because if you're the principal agent doing an immoral act then you're doing something immoral so boom they're wrong okay so you're the cooperator so we have something called there's formal cooperation and then there's material cooperation Formal cooperation is, that's the big one. So formal cooperation is when you, when you intend the evil act to happen. So a good example of this is, so you say you're working with an OBGYN and you're at an OBGYN office and they give sterilizations. Sterilizations are not okay in the Catholic church. If you are a doctor who has partnered with a doctor who performs sterilizations and you have helped to set the policy in your clinic that that's okay, you are explicitly for, it is explicit formal cooperation. You are actually helping the person who is doing it, get it done. And you intend for that to happen. Implicit formal cooperation is when you contribute to an act, even if you don't necessarily want it, but you help it happen. This would be if you are a partner in an OBGYN clinic and the other, the other doctor does sterilizations and you don't, but you work, you partner with that person so that you and that person can continue doing their work. Your work is good. Your non-sterilization regular work, that's, that's a good thing, but you are enabling an evil act for the sake of your good thing. That's implicit formal cooperation. So both of those are not okay because your intention is to keep something going. Even if you don't want to don't want the other OBGYN to do sterilizations, you're intending to allow them to keep doing it by partnering with them. So those ones are pretty simple. If you're working with somebody doing evil, they're keep going to keep doing the evil thing because you're working with them. That's, you can't do that. So where it gets a little bit more complicated is material cooperation with evil. This occurs when a cooperator does not intend the immoral act but by a separate act that is morally good or neutral contributes to the circumstances associated with the principal agent's act. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but basically if you are doing something that helps somebody do something that's wrong, even if you don't want to do it, it would be material cooperation with evil. So that's not always morally illicit. And I'm gonna give you a few examples, so don't worry. Immediate material cooperation occurs when the cooperator's action is so necessary for the success of the principal agent's actions that it's indistinct from the principal actor's action. So if you're doing something that is so, so necessary for the evil act to happen that it can't be done without it, you are in a state of immediate material cooperation. Example of this would be if during an abortion, the nurse helped the doctor find the fetus or ran the ultrasound machine while the doctor moved, that you are doing something that has to happen for the evil act to occur. There's no, it couldn't happen without you. Even if you don't want it to happen, it doesn't matter, it couldn't happen without you. 
and it's illicit. Then there's mediate material cooperation, which occurs when the cooperator's actions prepares or in some way sets the stage for an immoral act. So if you are a nurse at an abortion clinic or possibly like a, a hospital that does abortions and you prep the patient for that abortion, if you, you know, take her to the room, if you do all the, the stuff that happens before it and get her ready, you have prepared her for an, something that is immoral. So you've gotten her ready and gotten everything ready. And though you don't participate in the abortion, you set the stage for it and you got it all ready. So that can be come that can come down to two different things though. It doesn't have to be that close to it. There's proximate material cooperation, which is like right up on that, like the nurse. So that nurse, she would be in a state of proximate material cooperation, which is probably usually considered immoral, but the circumstances can change it a little bit, but for the most part, we're talking immoral. But then there's remote material cooperation. So that might be something like the janitor who cleaned the room. It probably had to be cleaned. The janitor didn't have to be the one to do it. And if you're, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but some of these places are not that clean anyway. Yeah, they probably needed to clean it, but not necessarily. So you cleaned the room so that they could have an abortion in there, but you didn't really contribute directly to it and you didn't really help. So it's a remote. So what it comes down to when we have immediate Sorry. When you have material cooperation, this particularly immediate material cooperation, it really comes down to exactly how involved you are, as well as uh, you know how important your role was to the completion of it. And also, there can be a little bit of a proportionality of how evil something was versus uh, your knowledge and intention. So you know if you're doing if you're doing electrical work in a hospital. And you didn't know that the circuit you're working on was for like the room where they do abortions. You technically are in a state of remote material cooperation, but you're not culpable for the abortion. You didn't do anything wrong and you did, certainly didn't intend for that to happen. So, see, that's an important thing, I think, because we are actually almost always in a state of remote immediate material cooperation. If you consider the clothes and textiles that come from China that may have been made in sweatshops or may have been made by Uyghurs who have been enslaved, put in concentration camps. Yeah, I, I don't know that my shirt may have come from that, but I'm still buying something. You know, I'm, if I'm buying something from someone who gives to an abortion clinic, I'm well removed and I'm not buying it. If I'm buying it because I want to support them because they give money to an abortion clinic, I am actually formally cooperating with, <laughs> with it because I intend to support an act. Now, I, we, half the time, we don't know who gives to, <laughs> to whom, so it's, it's a little hard. So your closeness to it has a lot to do with, with what we're talking about. That actually, that you know, I'm not going to get into it because it's a hot button topic and we're not talking about it. But when people are talking about cooperation with evil in terms of the cells used in the vaccines, particularly right now, the COVID vaccines, they're usually talking, you're talking material cooperation, pretty remote. It kind of depends on who you ask if it's remote enough. I have my opinion. I'm not going to put it specifically because I don't want to be the reason anybody decides to do one or the other thing, because I think you have to actually look into that very deeply yourself. I, that's something, and you should listen to people who know more about it than what I'm talking about. If you want a great, if you want someone who has an expert opinion on that, I work at a place called the National Catholic Bioethics Center, 
you can call them. They have actual ethicists. They will give you the best actual explanation for why you should or shouldn't. And you can have a discussion with them. They're a lot smarter than I am. They can tell you where I made errors in this in this discussion of cooperation. But anyway, I wanted to lay that out. I went over the five minutes that I promised John I would I would take to do this. But as we approach what the heck is going on next, I think it's good for us to think about cooperation and the level to which some possibly cowed man might be cooperating with somebody. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think it's very important to really have that broken down a bit before we launch in. We We talked a little bit before the episode. And you had pointed out that there are some some twists and turns in terms of the motives of characters and what they're doing. And so kind of knowing some of these elements up front, considering these can help when you consider what a character appears to be trying to accomplish versus what they actually accomplish and what their apparent intentions are versus their real intentions. It, it comes into play in terms of the decisions made and how we can discuss the degree to which those decisions were well-made or well-formed mm -hmm. going through the story. Yeah. And I think um, I'm not going to go into it. If you ever have want to have a really interesting conversation about formal cooperation versus material versus, you know, immediate and immediate and all that, have a discussion about being an undercover law enforcement agent. Mm. I had this with uh, coworkers of mine about trying to, catch people who are doing evil things and the extent to which you can do things that are wrong to catch people right if you are trying to infiltrate a drug like a you know, drug dealing gang i sound like a very old man right now <laughs> uh, if you're trying to infiltrate them the drug them drug guys uh they might ask you to sell drugs right or do drugs <laughs> or shoot somebody else who's selling drugs or, you know, if, if they're moving a shipment of drugs, not stop it to, from being moved. So, you know, that, there's the question. And I think that that is actually going to be, well, I won't spoil it. Why don't we, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think why that's, don't we move along? <laughs> that's a good example, though. I think mm -hmm. that's a good one to keep in mind. Yeah. So as we go forward through the story, there's a growing concern that typically gets articulated through Superman and through Wonder Woman about ultimately what what lengths they're willing to go or or what how they want to handle people who don't fall into mm -hmm. fall into line i guess is one way to put it but basically they're <laughs> they're try <laughs> they're trying to convince a younger generation of superheroes to conduct themselves with a particular moral framework or within a code that superman and his allies have to a greater or lesser extent all agreed to in times past. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to convince these newer superheroes of this, sometimes through conflict, sometimes through physical altercations and stopping these uh, these different factions from fighting each other. But it comes down to if, if somebody doesn't become convinced that your ideals are the ones that should be adopted, that they should conduct themselves in this way, what do you do? While not breaking your particular moral code, which would be a contradiction so we start seeing it lead to things like talking about imprisonment and how people are imprisoned at, at what point are people imprisoned and when do we let them out oh there's also yeah that goes back to something we talked about the last episode the question of we are talking about interring people who are superheroes who are doing it not the way that is preferred by the other superheroes so 
to what extent can they break rules that arguably don't exist for them? There's only the community-driven rules that they have not really agreed to anyway. It's not like a specific social contract between the Justice League and your other people who are flying around. So unless there's like, I don't know, is there a Jean-Jacques Rousseau of, of superheroes? <laughs> I don't know. Not to look into that one. <laughs> oh, look, issue one of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. No. <laughs> <laughs> there oh, yeah, is ask us the question of like what duty do they have to a community and are they superman clearly prefers for prefers not to think of himself as separate from the united states unless it's convenient for him <coughs> excuse, excuse oh, me gosh. Uh, um, <laughs> but their duty to a community one might argue that the only way that superman and the justice league can argue that they can enforce these rules is that superheroes have a duty to the superhero community but is the way in which the superheroes who are who are violating these duties to the superhero community exactly how far removed is that from the same manner in which regular superheroes are violating the rules of the communities that they protect? So, but we already did that last time. So, yeah, but I don't want to be the curmudgeon. Yeah, <laughs> Darn yeah. Superman. Yeah. Well, so it does get messy on several fronts because. Yes. You have these wheels sort of in motion without any dialogue with the world at large. So I'm describing like, I'm describing imprisonment and creating incarceration methods for superhumans who don't fall in line. None of this is going on in a larger discussion with national bodies or through even local communities. It's pretty much superheroes regulating themselves it's the idea that we're going we are responsible for our own compatriots i guess communities or people i don't know exactly what you but people who fall under sort of that flag of superhero who identify with that superman feels that it's like well we'll take care of this superman's saying we'll take care of this ourselves that this is too much for the uh, civilian populace, if you want to call it that, or for United Nations or for people who's like, well, we'll take it upon ourselves to take care of this. And that creates problems in terms of superhero relations with non-superheroes. It also creates problems within superheroes themselves because Batman and those who are like-minded with him are kind of thinking who died and made Superman king of the world and decided how this should be handled so even people like batman are butting heads with superman saying hey we we've been allies but we definitely are not on the same page as far as what the right thing to do is and the fact that you're you're deciding for yourself with the people who agree with you how this is going to happen yeah it it's, comes back to issues of authority and and just kind of how that works so I mean, yeah, yeah well, theoretically, one could argue there's a subsidiarity element to superheroes policing their community. Unfortunately, it doesn't work because their community is capable and willing to destroy everybody else. <laughs> so if, if it was Montgomery County, Pennsylvania is where all the superheroes live and they police themselves, that would be fine, except that it's not how it works. <laughs> it is interstate commerce out the out the yang <laughs> yes making it constitutionally uh, the purview of the federal government uh anyway <laughs> we're just gonna slip that in there so discreetly i said that was not a statement on anything other than the actual superheroes 
from the Constitution. Nothing to do with anything else going on. And I'm not being sarcastic. I just said that. Sure. All right, Captain America. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not Captain America. As far as we know, we haven't seen the both of you in the same room, have we? I exist. So <laughs> that is a whole other topic of conversation. <laughs> Sorry, nerds. Is Brendan okay. just the voice inside my head? I hope not. I have a daughter. <laughs> this is getting more complicated by the minute. Very WandaVision. So uh, I will mention, uh, just because it, it will come up, especially with Batman subplot, that we find out, we discover that some of the supervillains who previously plagued the Justice League have been congregating in secret. And, you know, I've never been sure. Is it machinations or machinations? How does, is that a hard K on that CH? How does that word get pronounced? Huh. I always read it as machinations. Okay. Let's say these guys are scheming. <laughs> Although a machine. See, Although, yeah, but, right. But it would be a day as, uh, as machina. I, I don't know. This is where I need to study language more closely. Hmm. But at yeah. any rate, we've got the these ne'er do scheming behind locked doors and within conference rooms, led by none other than Lex Luthor, which I suppose makes sense if Superman's kind of the focal point of the story, then you've got to have Lex Luthor skulking around somewhere. When we first get introduced to them, there's a moment that's only on one page, really, but I thought it was kind of interesting as a sort of a passing element of the story. It leads with a secretary having her neck broken by a villain named Vandal Savage. And it's just this very immediate visceral event. It's kind of quiet. It's not like a lot of superhero drama that typically involves epic, large-scale combat of an operatic proportion. This is just kind of in an office space. There's a woman, her neck's broken, and the villains kind of move on with their business. But the fact that Norm McKay and the Spectre, as invisible entities, are observing this, and Norm McKay's feeling the Spectre practically bristle at this. I don't know. I thought it was kind of a nice, nice is maybe not the word for it, but I like the fact that they acknowledge that evil, evil doesn't have to be these bombastic sort of gestures of sin. So I guess I appreciated the fact that it's demonstrating how evil doesn't have to be a spectacle to be evil, basically, that it demonstrates that the characters who are representing the villains live and breathe a life of sin, even in the small moments, even in passing gestures almost, but that it's still evil and that God sees it. And I don't know. So I I don't know why it stood out to me quite that way, but. You know, I, I, it stood out to me differently. I don't really? disagree. Okay. I, 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 I'm not saying I don't, don't agree with your, uh, with uh, what you got from it. Cause that is also, that is also true. I think though, honestly, I, if I, uh, I'm going to be that guy and be the worst and be like, I would have put that at the end of this scene, but that scene had a different reveal for the end. So there you go. But I thought that it was because of the voiced intentions of the group of you know, 'er Mm -hmm. ne'er-do-wells, which is, I'll just, you know, they are gathering in order to present themselves as a pro-human group that is standing up to the powerful superheroes to stop the the way that they're acting. And and I thought that I took it as a, and this is sort of after the fact, but I took it as a bit of a peek into the collateral damage of 
those whose focus is power clashing with others whose focus is power, even if theoretically one of them is seeking a just exercise of power and the other is not, regardless of what will happen, there will be collateral damage of the weaker smaller, uh, less powerful people. And the reason I, the reason that came across to me is, is the disregard with which everyone in the room re- reacted to this person's death. It was an annoyance, which, and I, 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 yeah, I'm not gonna, I, I don't wanna sound like a, an anarchist or anything like that, cause I'm certainly not. But this group who is standing up, who is saying that they're standing up to do this and to stop the superhumans against the superhumans who are you know, leaving dead people in their wake as well. I think that we have a moment of, uh, it's almost levity. Like, I know that it's not like funny that a woman's neck got broken. It's not, but the reaction is not another one, like what are along those lines, which is though, I think to a certain extent, especially when it comes to war or when it comes to huge international conflicts, the attitude of people in charge oftentimes ends up being like, oh, we lost another hundred people. Now, to a certain extent, it's necessary when you are trying to lead in a conflict not to get bogged down in every casualty because you would not be able to lead if you were destroyed by everyone, like you couldn't handle everyone. However, I don't think that that's what they're going for here. I think this is more of a look at a callous leadership which almost immediately puts us in the mind of, okay, I'm seeing what these guys are saying, but I didn't forget what they just did, which I, I think is important for any time you have villains going straight in, in comic books. It's like, all right, this sounds good, but I, I know who you are. I'm not saying that you're not, like it, it's, it's almost getting you ready to be like, okay, but what are you really up to? <laughs> like, which isn't necessarily the best way to look at people who ha- who are, historic villains but then this is you know a comic book not actual life so <laughs> sure i mean they they call themselves the mankind liberation front yes so kind and of everything good only good things come out of groups that end in liberation front just ask africa oh gosh no it's not no that's never a good it doesn't sound good <laughs> and i i think yeah and maybe sort of to what you were talking about the just the direct contrast between what just happened and the fact that they're saying okay yeah that was an annoyance and let's move on to saving humankind from the superheroes there's there's kind of this i think it is meant to be almost like a darkly humorous thing where it's like you guys can't seriously (laughs) believe that you're acting in the best interests of human beings or you know, the common man, so to speak, you just killed a woman who had no means of defense against. And, and you know, I let me clarify my, my one reference there about liberation front. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's almost a reference to the groups in a number of countries that will be like, you know, the liberation front or like the, uh, this country freedom, people's freedom, or like this, they call themselves that for branding. And if there's, I'm not saying that every group fighting in an African country, South America, all over the place, or even the Middle East, I'm not saying that all of those people are branding themselves that in order to hide that they take child soldiers or like kill people in villages and that sort of thing. But it is a real like 
like oh, I'm calling myself the People's Liberation Front, but part of my tactic is impressing people into basically military slavery. I, I, I don't think that that's a mistake in, in their naming of Mankind's Liberation Front, because as we know, Lex Luthor is not interested in liberating people so much as he is using a certain ideal to enslave them in a certain way. So uh, I want to clarify, I, I didn't mean to rag on Africa there. I was just merely referencing the numerous conflicts that have gone on wherein different tribes who are fighting for supremacy oftentimes label themselves as freedom fighters because it sounds better, whether that's actually their interests or not. So that I think is what they're doing here. And I, I think it's intentional, I had to guess. Food anyway, you were saying. <laughs> sure, sure. So they're having this discussion and trying to come to some understanding about what it is exactly that they're doing because Lex Luthor is suggesting some methods that are shady, but he, he continues to try to persuade the group that really ultimately it's in the interests of saving humankind from superheroes. So they're trying to frame the Justice League in a way that's unfavorable and that there could be collateral damage. But again, ultimately Lex Luthor proposes for, for the benefit of humankind. It's also in this boardroom that we get the first look at Captain Marvel, now called Shazam. That's a whole story. If you want to look into that, please do. It's, it's fascinating. Or maybe we'll talk about it at a later time. But at any rate, so Captain Marvel is in the room and it's worthy of curiosity because he's a superhero. He's rubbed elbows with Superman in the trenches, so to speak. And what on earth is he doing? in a, a suit and tie serving rather graciously these very evil people. So they don't really hash out too much of what's going on in the background or how this came to pass just yet, but it will definitely have import later on in the story. After that, we see more recruiting from Superman and this is in the United States, this is overseas. And so then we get to really the, the conversation between Superman and Wonder Woman that results in seeking out a suitable prison for these superheroes. They go to Atlantis and they meet with Aquaman and Aquaman in a very kingly and diplomatic way makes it rather clear that although they've been allies in the past and he respects them, that there's no way they're going to put a prison down there. And a lot of it has to do with his responsibilities. He's a, uh, a king, a sovereign of a nation that extends across the ocean. And so he's really trying to open the eyes of his compatriots that, hey, you know, when I was a younger man, yeah, I definitely wanted to help out with the surface nations and do good. But I've got a whole vast expanse of people under my care, and I can't, I can't do what I did before and also uphold those responsibilities. And it's during this conversation that we also learn that Wonder Woman has lost her place among the Amazons because they feel that she had failed in her mission in man's world, which is worth noting because A, she kept this from Superman up until now. And it might also inform some of her motivations and why she has such zeal in trying to very aggressively change what's been the trajectory of the new generation of superheroes so this uh, this leads to the first of 
several conversations between Superman and her where they disagree. And also where Superman's trying to find truth. He's trying to have these open relationships and open dialogue. And he's finding people are putting up walls. Batman's a little unsurprising. I think it's it comes as more of a surprise and more of a source of hurt when Diana or Wonder Woman is keeping secrets from him. And then we meet Magog, who has been kind of mentioned, but not really dealt with up until this part in the story. What did you think of Magog, Brendan? He's a character that was made for the story. He doesn't have a prior history in, in DC Comics lore or canon. Well, you know, uh, an interesting sort of, uh, he has an interesting perspective on uh, how he got to where he, he is. You know, that, that whole, uh, his whole argument as for why he has to do the things that he does certainly wouldn't qualify for uh, a moral act from the Catholic standpoint. Uh, it is an interesting question, though. Um, he sort of raises the argument when confronted by Superman that someone has to take care of things and, or, you know, that somebody has to do the job of the superhero. Uh, whether or not that's necessarily true exactly, he makes that point. And it's actually, it, it's interesting because it, I think that it just, it's interesting just posed next to Batman and his whole, his whole shtick. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Batman came in because the cops weren't doing the job the way they should in Gotham. Uh, and he did things his way and he, that's how he ended up doing it. Now, in contrast, we have Magog, who had quite the uh, disagreement with Superman over the way things should be done. And this kind of came to a head uh, with Joker. The capturing of Joker, Joker was going to get off as he somehow does, or, you know, maybe was going to get off. And um, Magog killed him. <laughs> Extra judicious execution of of the joker um which uh actually I, you know i've only read so many things or seems that it kind of seems like the way you stop the joker is kill him <laughs> um this uh, of course became an issue with superman because he was not into the killing but the public then reacts positively towards magog you know possibly with not bad reason that somebody finally just executed the Joker, uh, me personally, I'm generally not a uh, capital punishment person, but I think uh, if you consider, you know, capital punishment in the Wild West, where law enforcement was just not as simple, uh, not as easy, not simple, not as easy to keep somebody away forever, and a little bit harder to catch people. I think that the Joker rises to the level of, we can't keep this guy in prison. And when he gets out, he kills people. So maybe we can execute him. Now, Magog's authority to do that is an entirely different question, um, which is to say that he doesn't have it. But the populace likes it. Superman says, well, okay, I guess he's in charge now and leaves. And Magog's argument is because Superman did that, all of the bad stuff that Magog did and everybody else did happened because Superman left. And Magog had to do the things that to do things the way that Magog does th things, which is murder, and that's his argument. What it does raise the question of why Magog didn't, uh, you know, try to be more like Superman if that's what he really thought. But it also kind of suggests that it's probably not what he really thought. Uh, that he's looking for an excuse for the, how badly things went, how completely off the rails his 
I guess you could call it leadership. I mean, I certainly don't think the suggestion is that he's the leader of all these superheroes. He is probably, uh, I get the impression he's the most recognizable of all the uh, people, you know, the, the face of the new superheroes. On one hand, though, it does raise an interesting question of what is our duty to foster the behavior of the next generation or foster the ideals of the next generation? One might argue that Superman had a certain duty to be a leader. However, how one would argue that he wasn't already the right example for Magog and Magog did things his way anyway I don't know how someone would argue that. I guess what I'm saying is it's not a strong <laughs> moral argument that Magog has that Superman left. So I guess I have to do things my way. Now, it's pretty clear he wanted to do things his way. And this is a try to wait, try to make himself a way to try to make himself not accountable for how badly things went. So yeah, I guess you could say he's a baby boomer. Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm just kidding, guys. Oh, gosh. My parents are baby boomers. They're great. So... The Joker does consistently present kind of an interesting discussion, I guess, because the the main reason really that the comic book lore uses to explain his continued existence is that by virtue of his insanity that they can't execute him because his mental instability somehow affects his moral judgment that through the legal system that we have that I think kind of to what we've talked about, even in terms of culpability for mm-hmm. actions, in what way, what's what's the wording I'm looking for, but essentially if, if mental illness has some effect on how judgment is rendered on one's actions. Or... Yeah, yeah, but we execute serial killers, so. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I mean, if 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 we were making the argument that you know he, he's not more, he doesn't understand what he's doing because he's he's mentally incapable. I, maybe I mean, I for one do in general think we shouldn't. Well, I don't think we should execute anybody, but I don't, definitely don't think we should execute people who are mentally handicapped. But I don't know if that's the same thing as as uh, criminally insane, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think I don't want to be a uh, utilitarian here because I'm certainly not, and that's a bad word in Catholic ethics circles, but I think there might be some people that you can make an argument that we might just have to execute them, particularly if they keep getting out. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do about that, you know? So, of course, I don't know of, of an actual example of when that happens, so, you know. it's That's a good point, though, and something I should really look into because you're right. I suppose we do have capital punishment for serial killers and people who exhibit behaviors that fit the profile of the Joker's modus operandi. Mm. So yeah, I guess. I, I do want to point out that the important aspect of this for me is the inability to hold him. <laughs> Which I guess leads to a discussion of like, is that more of an indictment on the, well, it, no, I don't know if I want to is. go there. Uh, but I'm, I'm putting it on a a wild west level sure. of there's simply not the there's simply not the structure to hold him in the manner that he needs to be held right which kind of puts him on the level of a superhero because clearly they just can't seem to hold, like keep him do, from doing something so in in reality i don't think that there's a person on earth well a person in the united states that the united states can't hold perpetually but that's not what this Good podcast points. is about that's not a it's a whole other thing. But I think that the flashback or the sequence that unpacks the events that happened between Superman and Magog, I thought it was well written. 
Mm. Oh, yeah. in, in so far as so so the Joker is a Batman villain, the Batman villain, really. And so typically his rampage would take place in Gotham City. But in this story, it actually takes place in Metropolis. He goes on a killing spree in Metropolis and of all places, the Daily Planet, where Clark Kent, Superman's alias, works as well as Lois Lane, his wife. And it's suggested that among the victims was Superman's wife. And so I think it's very telling by giving Superman personal stakes or personal reasons to allow the killing of Joker either by himself or somebody else. And the fact that he doesn't and that he pushes back, I think it does provide that much more contrast between him and Magog. It's not even like Bruce Wayne scene earlier where he makes a sardonic wisecrack about, oh yeah, my villains got killed by this other guy. And you know, that's bad, but hey, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a silver lining here. Superman doesn't look at it that way. His wife and his coworkers and his friends have just been murdered by a serial killer and a he doesn't kill the joker and b he doesn't just kind of let magog get away from it he could have been like oh well magog kills joker that's too bad but you know i guess this you know i think it would have been easy to kind of convince himself to like quiet his conscience and not say anything after the fact but he does. He shows up in the courtroom and he says, this was wrong, even though he killed the man who killed my wife and friends and co-workers. Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it gives you, it shows you that Superman, for, you know, for all the objections I, I raised last time about their behavior, I think it, it, gives a, it presents the fact that Superman understands justice not as an action, but as a state of being, as a mm. state of things. Mm. You don't necessarily... You don't bring justice to a person. I know that we use that thing, but you know, you don't exact justice upon a person. A state of things being just requires people's requires people's actions continuously. Not in the so not in the sense of see that's that's almost a Catholic sense of justice versus a legal sense of justice. Hmm. So you know, a, a just world is not a world where. Let's say, you know, criminals get X, Y, and Z. Like that's, you know, probably they would, but that's more of a uh, law enforcement thing than a just situation wherein a criminal is punished or there isn't crime, I guess, would be a just situation. But the killing of someone isn't justice. I mean, perhaps it might bring about a just situation, but in order to get there, you did something that was wrong. So it's almost a Catholic mindset of, if we did something that was evil in order to bring about a just society, mm. it would not actually be just. It would just be, a, you know, it would be evil means to an end. And honestly, I mean, I do wonder if that is part of the message of this entire, entire thing. Because if you don't enforce the law and the rules in a just manner, you make the enforcement of the rules what's important. Not the state of, not the state of being that the rules are meant to bring about. Does that right. make more sense of what I was saying? Like, so that's that I think actually comes to the core of in Catholicism. What makes a moral act? What makes a moral act is not the state of things when you're done. It's the state of it's not how things end up. It is how you comport yourself and how society comports itself every single moment of time. Because things are never going to stay, you know, ending up 
good. It's going to go bad a different way. It's going to go, or, but if you say, okay, what matters is that justice was served or that this became peaceful, if that's all that matters, then how you got there is not important. But we know that it has to be because we can watch people in this, you know, in this book destroying buildings in order to get a, a criminal in a legalistic idea of, okay, a criminal has to be caught and published, that uh, published, <laughs> he'll get a book. That's that, good for him. Um, <laughs> in that sense, all there is is the function of bringing justice. And there never is a just society because, you know, your, your focus is getting people rather than changing people, I guess, or changing the situation. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've been rambling for several minutes now, and I'm sure people will be listening and wondering what the heck I was talking about. But, but yeah, I think it comes down to Superman is, is, under, is showing an understanding of the means do matter because the means at which you achieve ending Joker can't be a, a means that Joker would use to end his problems. You're coming too close to what, what an evil person would do in order to do good, which as we touched on in my speaking of uh, my uh, little uh, thing about cooperation is not okay. You can't do something evil so something good happens. And I think Superman is showing an understanding of that until he comes back now <laughs> and has possibly, you know, skipped away from that. Yeah, and I think especially because the Joker, as far as he's been depicted in this flashback scene, has been caught and arrested so he's he's handcuffed he's been at least for the moment incapacitated oh yeah so i think that does all the more to accentuate the fact that magog's actions were wrong not only did the did he kill the joker and thus have a flawed idea of what justice or correct moral action would be but the fact that he did it while the joker had been incapacitated and being brought to court through the legal system that extrajudicial extra judicial is very much a good way of describing it because lo- it, the law really has not had a chance to <laughs> have any kind of uh, action for this crime one might argue well for this crime yes <laughs> one might argue is they had a, they had a chance for him but i think it would change the situation drastically were the joker escaping uh, at this point or were it just him and magog and the joker and Magog was not certain of his ability to apprehend him. Uh, of course, in that respect, in that situation, Magog would also have to have the state authority to enforce the laws, which he does not. So, but we kind of have to suspend that for a lot of superhero stuff. Right. <laughs> you have got me thinking, though, as far as how how laws figure into things. And mm-hmm. so if you're you're just kind of pursuing the fulfillment of the law for the law's sake, rather than recognizing that the law is meant to be in service of, I, I guess there's, hmm, this could go in a whole other direction, which it's I guess is kind of what this is for. But besides holding a community together in harmony, I think I'm thinking from a Catholic viewpoint of, for instance, things like the Ten Commandments or the Catechism or those parts of our faith that lay out these prescriptions for how to live life, what you should and should not do. And there is good to them as they've been given to us by God. But if it's not, if it's not changing the heart of the person, or if it's, if it becomes legalistic, I think that's what we find 
even in the case of the different confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees, for instance, where it's, it's not necessarily that everything that the Pharisees were observing was bad, but that some or many of them had forgotten what, what those practices, what those laws, what those prescriptions were meant to be and how they were meant to serve mankind and humankind and comporting them to God's will. I think that's actually, that's a better example of sort of what I was trying to eventually get to in my circumlocutus of the idea of you are not, you know, you don't get up, pray five times a day, do this, do that, and get to heaven. You should do all those things, Mm -hmm. but the, the human element of what is happening around you, the community element of what is happening around you is the core of the core. You know, I, I guess so. This is this is gonna. This is a rhetorical thing, not a theological statement. So bear with me. God did create person before He gave person laws. <laughs> Arguably, God God's law is eternal, um, and our understanding of it is what grows. But He made the person long before He gave that person the specific laws. Now, natural law we understand to have existed all times, but whether we had the capacity to understand it. But I think that that may be in part what we need to talk about when we're talking about enforcement of certain laws, certain rules, and whether or not the law itself is the end or the person is the end. And I think that there's got to be a Pope who pointed out, possibly, possibly John Paul, I would, I would think Francis has said something to the extent, of, uh, if I had to guess, that the person is the creation, the law is the, is the guide, that we don't have rules because rules are important we have rules because people are important and we need to foster and steward that creation so the person is what matters first not the law that that person follows or the law that you follow you got to follow those laws please don't let me come sound like i'm coming out <laughs> against against uh, catholic teachings and rules uh, put down by the catholic church but they are all made for the person. So if your focus is the law and not the person, then you're doing it backwards. Hmm. Um, so and I think when we forget that, we kill jokers in the street. <laughs> so that was a huge jump. But anytime <laughs> you're, you're able to surrender humanity to a certain law, you're working in the wrong direction and hmm. you're cheapening humanity. And I think that I think that we can see that happen in many laws uh, that have been enacted throughout history. So I'm rambling again. So let's try <laughs> and refocus. All right. Um, so, yeah, at this, we have this confrontation between Superman and Magog several years later and a lot of whispering later. A lot of people have been wondering if Superman's willfully avoiding Magog. And, and so finally, we kind of get this confrontation, Magog kind of lays bare where he is, which is a sense of regret and also revealing, I think, as we've discussed at this point, he's got a very different mindset from Superman and a flawed sense of what it means to be a hero or a superhero or or somebody who's just trying to enforce the moral good. And from there we go to Apocalypse, which is one of the worlds created by Jack Kirby, who is a comic book artist and sometimes writer. And this was sort of a mythology that he had developed there was an element of science fiction to it but it's a world that superman's encountered himself it's 
been ruled historically by Darkseid, who is a despot and a tyrant and more or less the personification of evil. His son, Orion, who was raised in a more utopian world, has struggled with his dark parentage alongside a sense of what it means to actually be good. Having fast forwarded to this story, which is a potential future, Superman's approaching Orion for some input about how to handle imprisonment. And he's found that Orion has in fact taken the place of his, his father Darkseid and has kind of taken that step too far. He, he occupies maybe one of the grayest situations morally of everybody because the population of Apocalypse is so used to tyranny that Orion's positing that the only way to maintain order was to basically become the evil that he had fought for so long that this world just couldn't come around. It was so far gone that the only way it would remain stable is if there was a tyrant like Darkseid to enforce their will, to inflict their will upon the people. And so Superman's pretty open as Superman is of his uh, distaste and disappointment in how far Orion's come from his more heroic days. But Orion's not really being provoked. He's kind of resigned himself to what he's become and the, the way he handles justice as he sees it. There's actually a quote from these few pages that struck me in, in their conversation. Superman says, you're a god. You have the power to change your world. And Orion's response is, or to destroy it, you would be surprised, I fear, at how easily one can lead to the other. And so it's it's kind of a cautionary element to the tale of, I guess, how, how far moral compromises can take you, but also just how the clear-cut right and wrong, good and evil that Superman has kind of upheld as being really directly questioned by Orion in that he's saying that this world can't be changed because people don't want justice. They don't want the good. But he does actually point Superman in the direction of people on the, the ground floor, so to speak, of Apocalypse, who are also superheroes, but have not made some of those compromises. This would be Mr. Miracle and Big Varda. Mr. Miracle is an escape artist of the highest caliber, and he's presented as something of an evangelist on this world now. But ironically, he's being recruited by Superman not to escape from something, but to build something inescapable. And this will eventually lead to what's called the Gulag, which is the prison that's being developed by Superman and his allies. You can it imagine like what the suggestion is there. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, though, this... This passage here, passage, these couple of pages here, I think it raises a question of, especially if you're thinking at it from a, from a moral standpoint, what the value of saving something that can't be changed truly is. I, I think, and this is going to come across as a very dismal way of looking at things, but I think that he is, I, I think that uh, Orion is making a, a very unfortunate mistake in his you know, is coming to the conclusion that the only way to save this place is to take the despotic position and embrace the evil of it, which, of course, I would think would simply, it would leave quite simply, at least to a Christian mind, that the place is not worth saving, if that's the case. There is an element there of, well, I mean, first of all, the argument of is any place really, truly worth 
not worth saving. That's an entirely different question. But I, I think if he is at the point where he's saying, well, I have to become evil in order to save this place. Well, I don't know what you're really saving in that respect. It, unless there's some hope that the people who live there will turn away from evil. It certainly sounds like that's not the case, though. So if you are in a situation where, okay, well, there's only one way the only way to save this, maybe, maybe you're in a family, maybe you're in a relationship where the other person is just abusive or awful or evil. If you're sitting there, the only way in thinking, the only way for me to keep this relationship, this group together to embrace the bad part of it, the part that is evil, it's not worth that. It is not worth entering into the evil of something to do, to save it. And I'm going to sound a little bit like a, late 90s or early 90s late 80s psa or something like that but that it is not worth okay i'm gonna catholicize it it's not worth your soul to save someone who doesn't want to be saved or will not be saved by you now that's gonna sound like i'm coming out against trying to help somebody who is mired in sin i'm not i didn't say that <laughs> what i'm saying is if the option, the only way you think you can do it is to lower yourself into sin, don't do it. <laughs> it ain't worth it. Your soul has, your soul is eternal <laughs> as well. And you need to protect that. So I apologize for <laughs> jumping on my soapbox, but I just, you know, saving souls is an amazing thing. Your number one priority, as callous as it may sound, is your soul and getting your soul to heaven because that's what God's calling us to. Save as many souls as you can on the way, but if you have to lower yourself into sin to do it, it's not going to work that way. Anyway, back to this fun comic. All right. Well, much like before, we're going to leave you just before we get the ball rolling a little, a little more. So, right. So we are just at the inception of the Gulag and we're going to find moving forward how that has perhaps in the short term works out, but not for very long. And now logs always work forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's the implications are always great. Uh, so there's going to be more complications. Superman is trying to find sort of a definitive solution and it just seems to continue to get away from them. So certainly this is not sort of wrapping up Superman's problems or anybody else's in the long run. So we'll get into that in the next episode as we continue through the story of Kingdom Come. Oh! <laughs> uh, my name is John Kamiski, and I'll be here all night. You're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be fine. They live through the 80s. <laughs>